0: Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Now folks, you'll recall that back at Valentine's Day, the Sunday before Valentine's Day, we went ahead at that point and covered the first six verses of chapter 3. So if I were to quiz you on that sermon, you would make an A on that this morning, right? Right? But anyway, I mentioned that to say that since we finished up chapter 2 last week, we're going to skip over this morning and begin actually in verse 8 of chapter 3. And we're looking this morning at Christian attitudes about brothers in the church and enemies outside of the church. And so if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, and it would be helpful later on in the message if you would also have... Philippians chapter 2 handy, Uh, Matthew chapter 5, I'll go over these again, and Exodus 21. Philippians 2, Matthew 5, and Exodus 21 for later on uh, in the context of the message. Let's begin reading at verse uh, 8 of chapter 3. Uh, Peter says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Father, we ask this morning that you would open our minds and hearts to your word. This is your word. You inspired it. And now we would ask that you would illuminate our minds to understand it. And Lord, understanding it, help us to live it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. What Peter is doing is continuing his admonitions to the church as to how. To produce the right impression in the world. Why should we as believers in the Lord even necessarily care about our impression to the world? If we're saved, if we're heaven bound, and the world is going to persecute us anyway, then let's just leave them alone and let them go to hell. We'll gather in here and have our holy huddle and praise the Lord as we should do and just let the world go its way. But you see folks, we can't do that and be faithful to the gospel, can we? Jesus in Matthew 5 beginning in verse 13 said, You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world and people are to see your good deeds and give glory to God in heaven above. And then in Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore into all the world and... Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. You see, God has left his people here to be a kingdom of priests. As we saw back in chapter 2, we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God's not called us simply to be a holy huddle inside of these walls. We are to gather for worship, but then we are scattered because we have a mission to the world and we are to impact the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Peter is continuing here to address how we can do that. What we're going to see this morning is that both within and without the walls of the church Our Christian faith is to influence all of our relationships. Again, it's not a new thought. Peter is continuing this same focus. The first thing I want you to see with me this morning is Christian actions and attitudes within the body of Christ. In verse 8, he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now the word finally is adverbial and marks this off as the conclusion to the second cycle of commands that Peter gave his readers which runs all the way from verse 11 of chapter 2 to verse 12 of chapter 3. And then after that here in verse 8 Peter gives five adjectives in verse 8. All of which describe our conduct to one another inside the church. And then in verse 9 he's going to change and he's going to give a participial construction that points out our relationship to the outside hostile world. And so verse 8 is for us inside here. And then verse 9 and following is for us but as we relate to those out there. Let's first of all deal with us in here. How are we to treat one another Those who are seated to us this morning, uh, right next to us on the church pew, how are we to treat one another? And look at what he says. He says, live in harmony or unity of mind or spirit or be like-minded. Is Peter suggesting that we all have to think alike about everything? Certainly not. But what he is calling for is a unity in our disposition to one another. I want you to turn over to Philippians chapter 2 with me for just a moment because we see there the Apostle Paul giving the very same focus. Philippians chapter 2 and pick up reading with me if you would please in verse 2 Paul says complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to to the interest of others and then Paul is going to give the example of Jesus Christ who did that he came to the earth not looking after his own interest but ours If he were simply looking after his own interest, he would have never died on the cross. But he was looking after our interests, so he died on the cross. And so Paul is saying when we come to church, we ought to have that same attitude, that same mindset that Christ had. We ought to be focused on others and meeting one another's needs and not just our own. We're not simply to think about ourselves in the church. God made us a member of a body. When you think about the body analogy given in the New Testament, it helps us to understand what the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter both are saying. My arm is not my leg. And yet the two have to work together. A body is made up of different members but the brain coordinates all of the members to strive together in harmony. It's not a boring sameness but it is a like-mindedness in purpose. William Barclay says this goes back to John 17, uh, to Jesus' prayer for his church. By the way, I meant to mention this past Wednesday night, let me challenge you between now and Easter to read and study through John 13 to John 17. John 13 uh, we see Jesus there in the upper room with his disciples and he washes their feet and he gives the lesson there that we are to serve one another even in very humble tasks and he closes out chapter 13 by saying that we're to love one another that the thing that's going to make the church stand out to the world is our love for one another that's what's going to get their attention. And then in chapter 14, Jesus talks about that ultimate hope that we have. That he's going to prepare a place for us. And if he's going to prepare a place for us, he will come again and receive us unto himself. That where he is, there we may be also. And then in chapter 15, he reminds us that until then, we have to abide in him. He's the vine, we're the branches. We can do nothing without him. In chapter 16, he talks about the role of the Holy Spirit who will t- teach us and guide us and comfort us and then in chapter 17 he goes into his high priestly prayer for the church great section of scripture to read leading up to passion week when Jesus was arrested and suffered again I commend John 13 to 17 to you to read and study that between now and, and, and Easter What Peter, again, what Peter is doing here is admonishing us to have a unity of of disposition toward one another. We're to love one another. And and then he says that, that there is to be a sympathy in our hearts toward one another. You see, different believers will suffer different things at different times. You may not be suffering anything right now in your life, but chances are somebody in your Sunday school class is. Guess what? Next month, they may not be suffering, but you may be. And so there needs to be a mutual sympathy. And then Peter mentions brotherly love. I spoke of that a moment ago from John 13. Jesus said in verse 34 of John 13, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another by this. All people will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. By the way, in that love one for another... I appreciate so much the way you just, you show your love for one another. You have, you have fun with one another. We're very serious around here about the gospel. Very serious, okay? But we also have fun together, don't we? Isn't that a good mark for a church? I got to tell on somebody. You know how David Fink gives me problems all the time, right? And you know it's in love. Well, I got him good yesterday. <laughs> I mean, I got him good. We laid Kermit Tucker to rest. George Tucker's brother. Now, look at your, look at your watch calendar right now. What's today's date? What does that mean yesterday's date was? Okay. Uh, Kermit was buried up at Cloverleaf in 29 uh, Carolina Memorial Gardens. He's buried up there. Family's gathering yesterday for the meal and the visitation. We're about to go into the service a little bit later on. And I called David and I said, David, we got a problem. And he said, what? I said, you know Kermit's being buried today, right? The funeral and burial. Yeah, 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 yeah. I said, well, David, I'm up here at the church looking at the cemetery and there's no grave dug." David's in charge of all all that he said what I said there's no grave I said the family's here we're about to have visitation and a funeral and David we don't have anywhere to put a body he started panicking I mean, he and he turned to Brenda on the phone. You could hear him talking to Brenda. He said, Scott, nobody let me know. I said, the church office didn't call you or the funeral home didn't call you. No, nobody called me to get the grave ready. Oh, no, oh, no. Scott, what am I going to do? I said, David, you may want to start by looking at the date on your watch. <laughs> <laughs> Got him good, didn't I? just a brotherly love a kinship in the church then Peter says we're to have a tender heart or compassion. Now, what's the difference between this and the love that he's just mentioned? This word highlights a certain tender spirit toward one another, a sensitivity. Jesus saw the multitudes in Matthew chapter 9 and he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Did he love them? Yes, but he also felt a tenderness a compassion towards them next on the list is a humble mind pride insists on everybody in the church bending to you what is everybody going to do for me this week in the church but humility is the exact opposite how can I serve others and so in all of these five characteristics that he talks about here in verse 8 He's talking about how they're needed in a family and God's church is to be a family. Can I say something right here that runs the risk of being misunderstood by some? But I think it's it's something that needs to be said in light of growing trends today. And who am I trying to address? I'm trying to address that person who might be that Sunday morning worship service person only. And maybe even that just occasionally. We've seen seen trends in America in the last decade or so where these warehouse type churches, maybe, maybe hundreds, even thousands... Pour in for a Sunday morning service and praise the Lord for the numbers some of them are reaching. That's, that's, not, my, that's not my beef at all. But a lot of emphasis is placed on the service being this slick operation and we'll hire this massive staff to take care of everything. So you drop your kids off there and you drop this person off there. You come into this service and there's this big slick operation uh, going on and when it's over you go pick up your kids, get in your car and drive home and, and just be about your life and your career that week, whatever that might be. And then we'll come together next week or the week. Week after next, do it all over again. Not much of an emphasis on a family. I read passages like this in the Bible and it seems to me that the New Testament is telling us that that there is something more to a church family than just a Sunday morning gathering. We're to be invested in one another throughout the week. We're to be praying together, visiting together, ministering together, serving together, studying together. We're to be doing life together, you might say. It's not some type of big show and then we just all jump in our cars and leave. I I think it's that we become this society today where everybody is so anonymous with everybody. You drive into your neighborhood, the garage door goes up, you pull your car in, it comes down, you go in your house, and you don't even know your neighbors and that same kind of trend is coming into the church nobody knows anybody nobody nobody does anything together we just drive in, pour in at the last amen everybody scoots out and, and has nothing to do with one another other than Sunday morning folks it seems to me like that's a fatal flaw with what the New Testament is trying to teach us about the church. There's even a trend now you go into a church and the preacher won't even be there. He'll just be up on a big screen. I kind of like what Mark Dever in Nine Marks Ministry says about that. There, there's a problem with that because isn't ministry supposed to be Incarnational? But all these trends we see going on in the church today that if we're not careful, it it sort of, it tears apart what the New Testament is saying. And all of the analogies that the New Testament gives about the church It is a body. We're different members, but we're members of one another. And you put us together and we worship and serve and pray and study and do life together. And we complement one another. We complete one another. That's the church. And in this culture today, we're moving so much away from that. And I think it's a mistake. I think it is a violation of the New Testament theology about the church. Peter is, again, he, he's, he's, he's saying here how a church is to operate together. Well, after talking about Christian actions and attitudes within the body of Christ, Peter turns next to address Christian actions and attitudes to those outside the body of Christ. Beginning there in verse 9... For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He's talking here about our attitudes and actions to those outside. Now folks, at times we criticize Peter, don't we? We criticize him in the Gospels for how quick-tempered he could be. And sometimes Peter just didn't seem to get it. He was even known to rebuke the Lord on one occasion. When um, when Jesus said he was about to go into Jerusalem and suffer and be crucified, Peter said, no, 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 that's never going to happen to you, Lord. And and Jesus said, "Get, get thee behind me, Satan, for you're not minding the things of God. In the garden, Peter pulled out a sword and struck that guard. And of course most famous of all with Peter is how he denied the Lord. Not just once or twice, three times. Now granted we see a different Peter after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit has come upon him and the others. He was a changed man. But what I'm trying to say is it must be that Peter was maybe listening a little bit better than sometimes we give him credit for. Because what does verse 9 sound like? Verse 9 sounds exactly like what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Peter must have been listening pretty good, right? I want to show you what I'm talking about. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning there in verse 39, listen to what Jesus is saying there. And again, tied in with verse 9 of our text this morning. Uh, Beginning there in verse 39, Jesus said, But I say to you, do not resist... Well, let's back up to verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tune, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have, do not even Even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Sounds like what Peter is saying here in verse 9, isn't it? How in verse 9 of our text. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. The Apostle Paul says the very same thing, Romans 12, 17 to 21. He says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink For by so doing you will heat burning coals on his head Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good What Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount What the Apostle Paul said in Romans 12 What Peter is saying here in verse 9 Is so radically different than the standard that was in the world back then I was going to take time this morning to turn to Exodus 21 and read much of that whole chapter. I don't think I will, but you can this afternoon. If you go back and read 21 of Exodus, God was laying down laws about vengeance. In other words, if somebody put your eye out, you couldn't do more than that to them. You couldn't take their life. If somebody accidentally struck your wife who was expecting and she lost the baby you could could impose a fine on him but you couldn't take his life if he struck her on purpose and she lost the baby you took his life so in, in Exodus 21 it's this eye for an eye type thing and that's what everybody had in mind that was the standard of the day Now you read the Old Testament and somebody says it sounds bloodthirsty. It wasn't bloodthirsty at all. The the point was to limit, to limit the amount of retaliation you could take on somebody. You couldn't be disproportionate and do more to them. But in the New Covenant, Jesus comes along and then the apostles and stands all that on his head and says if somebody does evil to you, bless them do good to them. Boy, that's difficult sometimes, isn't it? But look at, verses, look at verses 10 and following what Peter is saying. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What are we being told? We're being told that there is a better way than vengeance. If we give evil for evil and insult for insult, think of all of the chaos that results in society. And folks, aren't we seeing that today in society? Would people not do themselves a favor if they walked away from so much of the silly conflicts and the hatred that we see in society today? It's like James says in James chapter 3 about the power of the tongue. James says the whole course of some people's lives is set on fire by their tongue. Peter is adding to that, it's not only the tongue, but it's our actions. The course of some people's lives is just destroyed because of what they do. I got so aggravated the other day when I read something in the news. Coincidentally, it came on my news feed exactly while I was preparing this sermon. And I thought, that's probably not coincidence. But I got so aggravated about it because I, I love animals. And it was a story about a guy down in Puerto Rico. You might have read the story. You might have seen it. A guy down in Puerto Rico outside of San Juan, he and his girlfriend got in a fight. He hit her. Then he grabbed up her little two-month-old chihuahua and he bit the head off of the dog. Gruesome story. Gruesome. Well, the guy has gotten seven years in prison. Seriously, seven years is what they've sentenced him to. Think about this. A guy and his girlfriend get in a fight. And he does something stupid like it's not stupid. I, it sounds demonic. It sounds demonic to me. But here's a guy who's done something. Think about this. Here is a young man because he couldn't do something like the New Testament is telling us here. Because he couldn't walk away, he couldn't bless, he had to return evil for evil, insult for insult. Here's a guy that is going to blow seven years of his life. And even if he gets paroled early, think of everything he's going to be exposed to in prison. The young man has probably ruined his life. Whether it's the Sermon on the Mount, whether it's Romans 12, whether it's 1 Peter 3, 9, the Bible is telling us something. If we get angry and return evil for evil and insult for insult, we are certainly not going to be blessed. We aren't going to be inheritors of a blessing. In fact, we're probably going to end up doing something that Could cost us dearly. Who knows if it's something like road rage you do in a split moment. And somebody loses their life. Guess what? You might even sit in jail the rest of your life. Not only will you not inherit a blessing, but it gets worse. Because in verse 12 it says that God's face will be against you. Because God is against those who do evil. And I want you to think about that. And also remember Peter's larger context here. He's talking about being a witness to the world. If you do evil while professing to be a Christian, is the world going to believe your witness? No. No. You've ruined your witness. So add it all up. Repaying evil with evil or insult with insult, you'll forfeit a blessing, number one. Number two, you'll probably mess up your life in some way and fail to see good good days. Thirdly, God will be opposed to you. And fourthly, you'll blow your witness. That's the spiral, the downward spiral of thought that Peter is wanting us to understand. Now in verse 13, Peter lays down something of a gnomic truth, a timeless truth. It's, it's not absolute and Peter admits that it's not absolute. It's a general truth. And what is that general truth? He says in verse 13, you do good and usually Usually people are going to leave you alone if you do good. But he admits it's not it's not absolute because then look at what he says in verse 14 In verse 14 he says But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake You will be blessed Have no fear of them Nor be troubled Generally people will leave you alone But even if they don't You'll be blessed if you suffer for doing good Folks woven all throughout the book of 1 Peter Is this theme of suffering for doing good Just like his words we saw last week to slaves He makes the same point here And then over in chapter 4 He's going to make the same point again Over and over and over again Peter is going to say if you suffer for doing evil all you are getting is what you deserve. But if you suffer for doing good you are going to be blessed by God. In verse 15 we see an admonition that continues to flesh out our second point related to our witness to those outside the church. We can make a whole separate sermon out of verse 15 but actually it's a part of the overall structure of this paragraph. As part of our actions and attitudes to those outside the body of Christ verse 15 tells us that we need to be ready to be engaged in apologetics. What's apologetics? Giving a defense of the Christian faith. We need to be ready to tell the unbeliever why we believe and act the way we do. Society might wonder, why would you Christians want to be swimming upstream against the culture? Why not just go along to get along? Why would you want to suffer for doing good? Peter says, well, here's your opportunity to witness when the culture doesn't understand why you're trying to live right side up in an upside down world, what that is going to do is give you the opportunity to tell them Now next week we're going to see how Jesus suffered for doing right. His suffering had a purpose. It was to wash away our sins and bring us to God. So Jesus' suffering had a purpose. But Peter is saying your suffering here has a purpose. Because your suffering allows you to tell the unbeliever why you're going through what you're going through. But notice that he tells us at the end of verse 15 how we are to do it. We don't need to tell the unbeliever, you know, you are really stupid for being an atheist. How in the world could anybody be so stupid for being an atheist? That's probably not going to get you very far with them, is it? And so he says, give your defense with gentleness and respect. Here again, he mentions having a clear conscience and suffering for doing good versus evil. When you go to bed at night, do you have a clear conscience in how you have lived for Christ that day? That's your goal. You might ask, can anybody do what Peter is suggesting? Not in human strength, but aren't you glad the Christian life doesn't depend on human strength? Some years ago, I told you a story about a couple. A couple not very far away from where you're seated here this morning in this church. On April 6, 2000, Ricky and his wife, Tanya, Ricky and, and, excuse me, Tony, Ricky and Tony Sexton were taken hostage inside of their Withville, Virginia home. They were taken captive by a fugitive couple who was out on a crime spree. Tony had taken their dog outside when Dennis Lewis, 37 years of age, and Angela Tanner, 20 years of age, came speeding up into the Sexton's driveway, pulled out handguns, and yelled at Tony to get back inside of the house. Inside, the Sexton's turned their hostage experience into an opportunity to demonstrate the gospel. They listened to their captives' troubles. They fed them. They read to them from the Bible. They prayed with them. They watched gospel videos together. During negotiations with the police, Ricky Sexton refused his own release when Lewis and Tanner suggested that they might simply end the standoff by committing suicide. The standoff had an unusual ending. Before surrendering to police, Angela Tanner left $135 and a note for the Sextons that read, Thank you for your hospitality. We really appreciate it. I hope he gets better. We wish you luck and love. Please accept this, it's really all that we have to offer, love, Angela and Dennis. I think Peter would say, see, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning if you would please. before we pray I want to ask you to think about some things what is your commitment like to the people sitting around you inside the walls of this church do you have a commitment to them or are you here simply for yourself Do you need to make some changes in your involvement in people's lives that you worship with? Sunday, or or church rather, is to be more than a Sunday event. Last Sunday night in my small group, the question was asked, what do you remember most about church from when you were growing up? What's some of the greatest experiences that you had? And to a person, it was mentioned about the friendships and the support that was formed. Maybe the memory of a youth group experience. Maybe it was a circle of friends that got together each week outside of church. One gentleman mentioned that every single week after very, very, very long church services, it was dinner on the grounds every single week. And people stayed at church for hours and hours up into the afternoon. But in each case... The memories that people stated as they went around the room had to do with what Peter said here to Christians in verse 8 about our relationships with one another. Don't cheat yourself of that. Not only does the body of Christ lose, but you lose. You lose wonderful experiences. What about your testimony to outsiders? Are you willing to change the way you operate so you can give a defense of your faith? Is your life Making an impact for the gospel inside the church and outside the church. Lord, may it be so. Thank you for this church family. And Lord, help us to be a family a family that prays together, studies together. Worships together. Encourages one another. A family. And God help us to be that salt and light to a very dark culture. That we would not return evil for evil or insult for insult. But that we would respond differently so that people would say. How can you do that? And then that gives us the opportunity to tell them. To tell them about you. Lord, help us to be a transformed people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.